The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. All right. Um, uh, we, we're going to just go through a particular doctrine, which is, uh, it, it's not a new doctrine. It's something that's been out for quite a while, but it is something that has taken hold, at least in circles with me, a lot lately. I see a lot of it posted on Facebook. I see it, uh, uh, people arguing this particular doctrine. And um, so we're going to discuss why uh, this is incorrect. I'm going to give the uh, biblical uh standard for this, and I'm going to explain it, and it's going to take probably most of the, uh, the class today. And so this is going to be in between a Bible study and a sermon. A Bible study, we have conversations. If somebody wants to bring something up, we're not going to do that. But we won't be like a sermon where I'm just talking to you. I may ask you a question, and if you can answer, give me five words or less so that I can repeat so people can hear what I'm saying. But I just want to see how smart you are at certain times, and so I will ask some questions. But um, here is the title of this today. It's When the Church Began, Hyperdispensationalism, Why It Is Wrong. All right? Hyperdispensationalism is also known as the grace movement or mid-acts dispensationalism. It rejects water baptism, but yet it oddly keeps the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, both of which were mandated by the Lord at the giving of the new covenant. Hyperdispensationalism teaches two separate gospels, one for the nation of Israel and one for what they call the body of Christ, meaning the church. Is this correct? Anyone? No, it is not. I see people, can you tell me why it's not correct? The reason why is because Scripture does not teach it, nor does it ever even imply it, okay? I mentioned this to Sergio just before I was coming to class today, and he said, uh, what do you, I, I'm going to do something different today. And he said, what? And I said, oh, I'm going to talk on hyperdispensationalism. So he went and looked it up on the Internet, and he read about it because he wanted to know in advance what I was going to talk about. And I mentioned that we would talk about that at the uh, class. And um, what he did is he sent me something on this. Now, this is actually speaking of ultra-dispensationalism, but it's the same. What it is is you have regular dispensationalism that says that God works in dispensations. And then you have what's called hyper-dispensationalism. Hyper-dispensationalism says that the church began with the Apostle Paul. It did not begin at Pentecost. And then they explain the reason for that. Ultra-dispensationalism says that the church began at the end of Acts, right, at Acts 28, and that's where the church began, okay? But I want to read you a quote that Sergio sent me because it is valid and it is exactly what you will see with hyper-dispensationalists. It begins, no hesitancy. This is a person who was defended against this in the past. He says, no hesitancy in saying that ultra-dispensationalism's fruits are evil, it has produced a tremendous crop of heresies throughout the length and breadth of this and other lands. It has divided Christians and wrecked churches and assemblies without number. It has lifted up its votaries in intellectual and spiritual pride to an appalling extent so that they look with supreme contempt upon Christians who do not accept their particular views. And in most instances, where it has been long tolerated, it has absolutely throttled gospel effort at home and sown discord on missionary fields abroad. 
So true are these things of this system that I have no hesitancy in saying it is an absolutely satanic perversion of the truth. And that is from Wrongly Dividing the Word of Truth, chapter one, and I can't pronounce the guy's name, but um, uh, no, 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 it's not Lozu or something. And that is from 1938. So this has been going on a while, but it is something that uh, uh, needs to be addressed once again. It is a heresy. One example of the teaching of hyperdispensationalism is provided by a man named Steve Atwood in his sermon, When Did the Church, the Body of Christ, Begin? Okay. Now, what happened is I've got a friend that's kind of been drawn into this, and he emails me, and he's been piecemealing this for a long time. What about this? What about this? And I, I give him an answer, and of course, he goes back and watches another sermon, and he gets bad information, and he comes back. And I said, I'm not going to do this anymore. Then he said, would you please do a talk on it then so that we can get this resolved? And so that's what I'm doing. I'm doing it in response to him and several other people that are friends on Facebook that have been sucked into this particular bad teaching. I don't know Mr. Atwood from a hole in the wall, okay? I don't know his church. I don't know anything about him. All I know is my friend sent me three or four sermons, and I picked one of them to analyze and to respond to. He might be the nicest guy in the world, but he is teaching heresy, and that's why I just picked his particular sermon. And as I said, it's entitled, When Did the Church, the Body of Christ, Begin? All right? I don't bear him any ill will except towards this terrible doctrine, His sermon will be used as a basis and beginning for covering the major errors of this heresy. Now, why is it a heresy? It is because it teaches two Gospels, not one. People speak of Calvinism as heresy all the time. You hear people say, oh, those Calvinists are heretics. And yet Calvinism is not heresy. The difference? Bad doctrine will not keep somebody from salvation. Calvinism is simply bad doctrine. This is heresy. It will keep people from being saved. Heresy is something that proclaims a false gospel, and it will, in fact, keep people from being saved. By proclaiming two gospels when there is only one, they proclaim heresy. This doesn't mean that those people are not saved, but their message can lead to another never coming to the truth of God in Jesus Christ, specifically the Jews. In this case, I have a text verse for you from Galatians chapter 1. He says there, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. The gospel of Jesus Christ is based upon the person of Jesus Christ. In his completed work, there is one and only one new covenant. When it says in Matthew 4, 23, which they use in hyperdispensationalism to prove their point, Jesus went about all Galilee teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. It does not mean that there are two gospels. It means that he, Jesus Christ, is the subject of the gospel. His work in fulfillment of the law, including his death, burial, and resurrection, is the completion of the basis for the gospel. From there, that one and that only one gospel message goes forth. The apostles are all clearly united in this message, as will be seen when we continue. 
The gospel, or good news, is an extension of the work of Messiah. The gospel of the kingdom is one. That there is a literal earthly kingdom coming where Messiah rules among Israel does not divide the gospel. It is simply a part of the dispensational model, just as the same gospel was preached to Abraham beforehand. As Paul notes in Galatians 3, verse 8, he says there, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham before, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. The gospel is that of Messiah in any dispensation. A literal kingdom on earth falls under that one gospel of Jesus Christ. This is obvious on the surface because only in coming to Messiah with the Old Testament promises to Israel will they be brought about. It is faith in Messiah's completed work which will bring Israel to the realization of those promises. I'm going to take you to Zechariah chapter 12, verses 10 through Zechariah 13, 1, and I'm going to read you what it says there to substantiate what I just said. So let me get there really quickly. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In that day, there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning at Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. And the land shall mourn every family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of Shimei by itself and their wives by themselves, all the families that remain, every family by itself and their wives by themselves. Verse 13, 1, in that day, a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. But unlike the Gentiles, Israel is a corporate body as well as a group of individual people. The promises of the kingdom for Israel are both for individuals and for the collective nation. This is obvious from verses such as Hebrews 4 verse 3, which says, For we who have believed do enter that rest. That's correct. This is written by a Hebrew, certainly the Apostle Paul, to the Hebrew people. And yet he admits that they who have believed, meaning any Hebrew or any Gentile, have entered into the promised rest. However, in verse 4, 9, speaking of Israel, the collective, it says, there remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. There is one gospel being worked out in individual Jews, and the same gospel is being worked out in the nation of Israel. The entire problem with this false doctrine, this heresy, could be resolved with one simple teaching application. Anybody? Only one. Context, it, context, context. That's true. It is taking the book of Acts as it is to rightly be analyzed, as a descriptive account of history, not a prescriptive doctrine. Hyperdispensationalism fails to do this, and they fall into the same error as other major teachings, such as Pentecostalism, the Church of Christ, and countless others. Just as Joshua is a historical record of what occurred in Israel, and not a book of prescriptions, 
So Acts is a historical record of what occurred. Using Acts as a prescriptive book of doctrine leads to confused theology, and it diminishes the importance of the prescriptive epistles which then follow it. Mr. Atwood begins his sermon by citing 2 Timothy 2, verses 15 and 16, which say, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, but shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness. He then gives a chart of the breakdown of scripture titled, Rightly Dividing the Word of Truth. That's at minute 133. Such a title is wholly unnecessary. Nobody in their right mind would purposefully, wrongly divide the word of truth. And to post such a title immediately makes a claim that his way is that proper way, when in fact he wholly misuses scripture for the next 25 or so minutes. At minute 148, he says of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that the doctrine has to do with the nation of Israel. This is true with the Synoptic Gospels. He is wrong concerning John. If you want to know why, you can watch our 1 Corinthians 1, 1 and 2 video, which is in our 1 Corinthians playlist. This error is because he fails to understand the layout of Scripture, which reveals the dispensational model, and that structure is formed based on the prophecy of, does anybody know? Noah over his sons, Shem and Japheth, all the way back in Genesis chapter 9. To explain that would take way too long, but you can refer to our study on 1 Corinthians 1, verses 1 and 2 in the 1 Corinthians playlist. In short, it is based on Noah's words which state that Japheth will dwell in the tents of Shem. What is that referring to? Watch, study, learn, and show yourself approved. At minute six, Mr. Atwood speaks of the Leviticus 23 feasts, specifically mentioning the presentation of the two loaves. Ironically, if he understood the Leviticus 23 feasts and what those two loaves picture, his entire theology would unravel right there. But instead, he says that everything about Pentecost was Jewish. That's at verse at minute 613. Is that correct? Anyone? What is wrong with that? That is one of the largest errors in the church today, among the Hebrew Roots Movement people, among Reformed theologians, and among the likes of Mr. Atwood. The feasts are never, ever called Jewish feasts, nor are they called feasts of Israel. They are called what? Feasts of the Lord. We have an audience that understands theology. They were given, as the book of Hebrews says, of all of the Leviticus sacrifices and rituals as parables. Even the dietary laws of Israel, to the very last word, point to the work of Messiah. You want to talk about rightly dividing the word? Go read or watch and understand the dietary laws of Leviticus chapter 11 from our Leviticus playlist. It's right there for anybody to watch. I'll give you a couple examples just so that you understand this is fulfilled in Christ and has nothing to do with the Jews. When Jesus said that you are not to eat certain animals, he gave categories. What are those categories? Two major categories. Hooves need to be split all the way through. And they must also, they must also chew the cud. Does anybody know what that's picturing? The first is rightly dividing the word of God 
The second is to study and mull over and ponder the word of God, exactly as we are told in the New Testament. Every single animal that is selected, because not all animals are named, and some of them are named that apply in different ways. Every animal selected, the root of that Hebrew word for that animal points to a New Testament doctrine that is written out by Paul. Every single one of them must have scales on the fish. Why? They must have fins on the fish. Why? It is all explained in the Leviticus 11 sermon. Rightly divide the word of God and you will understand that this has nothing to do with Jews or Israel, but everything to do with the crucified Christ, our Lord Jesus. They only look forward to the work of Messiah and thus the gospel of Jesus Christ. All All of the Leviticus 23 feasts point directly to the work of Jesus Christ on behalf of the gospel. To understand the details of the feasts, verse by verse, and their fulfillment in Jesus Christ, please be sure to watch the sermons on the Superior Word YouTube channel. I don't have time to go through that. The fact that these were observed by Israel means nothing. It means diddly. Paul explains their purpose in Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival. The festivals are the feasts of the Lord. The food and drink are the dietary laws or a new moon or Sabbaths. All of those things are detailed in the Old Testament, including the Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come. But the substance is of Christ. That's right. It is nothing having to do with Israel. Nothing except they were chosen to live out these parables. Paul is saying that in relation to the church and the church's relation to Christ Jesus. So obviously the feasts are not Jewish feasts, but pictures of what Christ would do for the church in the one and only one gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is evidenced by the hand of Paul. No, not Peter, but Paul. In, starting with the Passover, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7. Christ, our Passover, Passover was sacrificed for us. 2. Unleavened bread, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 8. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Three, the feast of first fruits, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Four, this is Pentecost in Ephesians 1, 13, 14, and elsewhere. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Weeks, or Pentecost, is literally shown to be fulfilled in Romans 16, verse 5, and 1 Corinthians 16, verse 15. In the first reference, Romans 16, 5, greet my beloved Epineatus, who is the firstfruits of Achaia to Christ. And then in 1 Corinthians 16, 15, I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that is the firstfruits of Achaia. The presentation of the two loaves is what those verses are speaking of. One a Jew, one a Gentile, and thus one gospel message. Mr. Atwood failed to take in the whole counsel of God, and he missed what those loaves he spoke of was pointing to. 
5, the Feast of Yom Teruah. Some people call it Rosh Hashanah. It's not. It's 1 Corinthians 15, verse 47. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. Six, the day of atonement, Romans 3, 24 and 25, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation, a hilasterion, meaning the mercy seat on the day of atonement, which the blood is applied to. And that is by his blood, Paul says. Seven, tabernacles, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 7. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, tabernacling, dwelling in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. All of those feasts are fulfilled in Christ. They are not Jewish feasts. They are not feasts of Israel. They are feasts of the Lord. The other feast of the Lord is, there's one more. It's actually the first one named in Leviticus 23. The Sabbath, thank you, is said by the author of Hebrews, who is Paul. And if you want to understand that, go see the opening statement to my Hebrews commentary, which you can access online, is also fulfilled. As Paul says in Colossians 2, 16 and 17, which I cited before, that is a shadow, including the Sabbaths, with the words in Hebrews 4, 3, I've already said it once, for we who have believed do enter that rest. We have entered into God's rest all eight feasts of the Lord are fulfilled by the Lord Jesus and are lived out in the one gospel for Jew and Gentile. One gospel. They are not Jewish feasts. They are feasts of the Lord pertaining to the one and only church, which is the body of Christ, Jew and Gentile. I will define that further later. One gospel. Hyperdispensationalism fails the rightly dividing the word test. Further, all of the sacrificial system of Israel, its dietary laws, and all other precepts found in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, all of them are fulfilled in who? In Jesus Christ, as revealed in the words of the Apostle Paul, and they pertain to the one gospel of God found in Jesus Christ. To gain understanding in these and to avoid the heresy of hyper-dispensationalism, you will need to go and watch all 52 of the Leviticus sermons. And it needs to be understood that all of those feasts and everything associated with those sacrifices centers on the Lord who is in their midst, who is represented by the details of the tabernacle, which is described in Exodus. Every detail points to Christ. Every color, every material, Everything points to Christ. In order to understand that, because we don't have time, you would need to then go watch all 105 of our Exodus sermons. In them, you will see the Lord revealed in one and only one gospel. But sound theology is not like heresy. It takes a lot of mental effort, and it is, in fact, hard work. Case closed, hyper-dispensationalism fails the rightly dividing the word test. The next comment by Mr. Atwood that is of interest is found at minute 639, where he says, while speaking of the Jews, his words now, this church was a group of people saved based on the gospel of the kingdom. That is repentance, water baptism, and so forth. Mr. Atwood makes his claim based on his analysis from, of all things, the book of Acts. We've already discussed this, but I'm going to ask again. Can anyone in this congregation tell me how the book of Acts is presented? 
Descriptive. Thank you. It is a descriptive account of what occurred in the early church. Acts prescribes nothing. The fundamental error of almost all unsound New Testament theology is found in evaluating the book of Acts incorrectly. Pentecostalism, the book of Acts. The Church of Christ, the book of Acts. Hyperdispensationalism, yes, the book of Acts. Mr. Atwood and all hyperdispensationalists make the fundamental mistake of evaluating the book of Acts in a prescriptive manner. The book of Acts is, and I'm just going to give you a number off the top of my head, it's not accurate, but you'll understand the premise, it is 99.7236% descriptive. And the percent that is prescriptive is only prescriptive because it is based on the words of Jesus Christ, which are found in the book, or words which are superseded at a later date when Paul's writings came about. Mr. Atwood, as all hyper-dispensationalists fail to understand this, and he takes particularly Peter's words out of their intended context because of this. The five main rules of hermeneutics are, anyone? Is it prescriptive? Two, is it descriptive? Context, context, context. Thank you. In failing to maintain the intended context of the book and in applying the words of Peter in a prescriptive manner, hyper-dispensationalists run directly onto the heresy highway by proclaiming not one, but two Gospels. That will continue to be revealed as we go on. When evaluating context, one needs to determine who is speaking, to whom they are speaking, the reason, meaning the surrounding circumstances, and so forth. Hyper-dispensationalists fail to do this, and they thus destroy the context. His next erroneous comment is made at minute 655. He says, you are going to see that the church that Paul begins, that Christ begins with Paul, rather, is something new. It is something altogether different that you find previous to the Apostle Paul. He states this because he has formed a hermeneutic which is based on a prescriptive reading of the book of Acts and a misunderstanding of what Paul means when he speaks of the mystery which has been revealed to him. I'm going to get ahead of myself here, but they teach that prophecy belongs to the Jews, mysteries belong to Paul. I'll repeat that again. Again, at minute 817, Mr. Atwood, speaking for hyper-dispensationalists everywhere, says everything about Pentecost was Jewish. It was a Jewish feast day. It was the last days for Israel. Not something new, not the birth of the church. He says this after citing Acts 2, 16 and 17 and Acts 3, 19. I will read them to you. First from Acts 2. But this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last day, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And from Acts 3, repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. He is incorrect. Joel was prophesying of a time when collective Israel was given the opportunity to accept or to reject the work of Jesus Christ. It will again be revealed just prior to the return of Christ because as Paul says, Jews request 
A sign. We've got a very smart congregation here. That's 1 Corinthians 1 verse 22. The term last days is explained by the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 3 verse 1 as referring to the duration of the church age. The feasts of the Lord are not Jewish. They are Messiah-ish, to coin a phrase. Christ had just then been crucified, fulfilling the feasts of the Lord and ushering in a new covenant, which includes Gentiles and which is based on the one and only gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And further, Amos is cited by James in Acts 15, verses 16 and 17. He first very clearly points out in Acts 15, verse 15, that God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. He then says, after that, after this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. It is perfectly clear from this that they did not believe that it was the last days for Israel. The context of Amos is that God would exile Israel while the Gentiles assumed the leadership role in the church. That is seen perfectly clearly in Amos 8, 9, and 10. So I'm going to take you to Amos 8, 9, and 10. Amos 8. And it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like mourning for an only son and its end like a bitter day. They knew this was coming, and they understood that the last days encompassed the entire church age, just as Paul indicates. They are in one accord, and there is one, only one gospel message for Jew and for Gentile. At minute 937, Atwood says, what Paul had, the doctrine Paul had for the church was not according to prophecy. Then he cites Ephesians 3, 1, which says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles. He claims that prophecy is for Israel, but that the revelation of the mystery is for the church, which is the body of Christ, meaning Gentiles. But he fails to explain several things. First, Paul says that the mystery is revealed, as it says in Ephesians 3, verse 5, to his holy apostles and prophets. I have a very difficult question for you. How many apostles is Paul? Anyone? He's one. Well, if you can count with this one finger, you understand that it is a mystery revealed to more than one apostle. I'll read it again. It is revealed to his holy apostles and prophets. The use of the plural indicates that all of the apostles had this revealed to them. And that is just what Peter and the others learned, guess where, in Acts 10 and 11. The only difference between Paul and the other apostles, Peter in particular, is that they went to who? They went to the Jews. Paul was, thank you, that's my mother who's very smart back there. Paul was designated to go to the Gentiles. Gentiles. And that explains what the mystery is. Another point that Mr. Atwood fails to grasp. And yet, which is revealed by Paul in 1 Corinthians 2. Here's what Paul says. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. 
the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his spirit. He says the mystery was not known to the rulers of this age. This means both Jew and Gentile rulers. Both participated in Christ's crucifixion. This portion of the mystery was that Christ is God. He said right here, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Christ is God. If they had known this, they would not have crucified him. Obviously, but Christ had to die in order to atone for sins. If the mystery had been revealed, this would not have occurred. This is not a Paul mystery. It is simply a mystery which Paul explains. Thomas proclaimed what when he saw Jesus? My Lord and my God, thank you. So he understood that it was God. So it wasn't a mystery to him when he saw it, and it was a mystery to none of the other apostles as well. Paul just simply explains it to the Gentiles he's writing to. Secondly, Paul says explicitly that the gospel is the mystery in Ephesians 6.19. This is speaking of the one gospel of Christ's incarnation, death, burial, and resurrection. That is the exact same gospel that Peter James, John, and all of the other apostles proclaimed. And thirdly, Paul explains what the mystery of this gospel is in Ephesians 3. This is not, this is not a complicated verse either. He says that the mystery which is revealed is that, here it is, the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. When he says of the same body, what is he talking about? Church. Jews and Gentiles. He says the Gentiles are a part of the same body. That is the mystery, that Gentiles are included in one body with the Jews. It is not two gospels it is one. Messiah's work for Israel, of whom he is referring to, is the same as Christ's work for the Gentiles. Does anybody know what Messiah means? Anointed. It means anointed one. Does anybody know what Christ means? Anointed one. It's just simply the same word in another language. They are one and only one body because there is one and only one gospel. Paul is simply the apostle to the Gentiles, Ephesians 3, verse 8, and so on, as Peter is the apostle to the Jews, Galatians 2, verse 7, etc., bearing the same message. This is evident first from 1 Corinthians 4, where Paul says, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Who is Paul speaking of when he says us? Anyone? Yes. Yes. All one needs to do is turn back one page to the last verses of that chapter, which is chapter 3 comes before chapter 4, okay? And here's what he says. Therefore, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world of life or death or the things present or things to come. All are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. 
Now, once again, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 1, Paul says, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries. And then right before that, he mentioned who those stewards are. Paul, Apollos, and Cephas. I have a question for you. Who is Cephas? Peter. Cephas is the apostle Peter. Paul, Apollos, and Cephas were all on the same page concerning the mysteries. They all were stewards of the mysteries of God, and they all proclaimed the same gospel. This is more evident from what occurs in Galatians 2, verses 11 through 21, which I will now read to you. Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles, something that a Jew could not do before Christ died and was buried and was resurrected. And he goes on. He would eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him. So that even Barnabas, where did Barnabas go with Paul? On missionary travels, didn't he? Proclaiming what? Two Gospels? Even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the Gospel, one Gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ. Speaking to Peter as well as to Paul, and not by works of the law, for by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. He is speaking of the same gospel which Peter and Barnabas and he all proclaimed, all of them on one page. Peter had a moment of failing in the flesh and he departed from the one and only gospel. That is what precipitated the council in Jerusalem, which is recorded in Acts chapter 15 and which establishes one and only one church. Peter, after learning his lesson, went so far as to warn against hyper-dispensationalists and their false teaching of two Gospels when he said these words, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, the same things that Peter writes about, in which are some things hard to understand, uh, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of scriptures. No, Peter was on the same page, and he preached the same gospel to the Jews as did Paul to the Gentiles. You had a question? Oh, no, I was going to say that um, I 
That's correct. That's in Romans 9 through 11 is where he says that we are grafted into the commonwealth of Israel. We are not Israel, which reformed theologians and replacement theologians say we are grafted into the commonwealth. One more question and we got to go on. Okay, I'll get to that. Okay. Uh, that's why I don't want to go through questions here. I will ask the questions, you respond. I will get to that. Peter was on the same page and he preached the same gospel to the Jews as Paul did to the Gentiles. It is a gospel which has been twisted by many, including hyper-dispensationalists, to the detriment of the body of Jesus Christ, which is the church, Jew and Gentile. At minute 1013, he says, listen. You cannot find in prophecy, these are his words, that there was going to be a time when God would save Jew and Gentile in one body by the gospel. This is a hugely deceitful statement by introducing the words in one body. Christ's work is for both Jew and Gentile. To divide what he has done when it is explicitly said that he would save Jew and Gentile through Christ is a poor way of analyzing what he promised in advance. Further, if you simply take Mr. Atwood's words and turn them around, you come to exactly the same conclusion. I'm going to say his sentence with one change. Listen, you cannot find in prophecy that there was going to be a time when God would save Jew and Gentile in two bodies by the gospel. See, it doesn't work that way either. The reason is because that is the mystery that God was going to save the whole world, defeating the devil and bringing about salvation for all through one gospel. This is the mystery. Mr. Atwood, I'd like you to try Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 9, and then we'll go to another Isaiah verse in just a second. We're going to go first to Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 9. <clears throat> Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect. This is speaking of Christ, by the way in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out nor raise his voice nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands shall wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare before they spring forth. I tell you of them. And then we're going to go to Isaiah chapter 49, and I'm going to read you verses 5 and 6. And now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, once again, speaking of Christ, to bring Jacob back to himself so that Israel is gathered to him, speaking of Israel, for I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord and my God shall be my strength. Indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the 
Gentiles, that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. In these verses and elsewhere, he said that he would save Gentiles. He just didn't say how. Now we know with the mystery revealed. In minute 1311, speaking of Paul, Mr. Atwood then says his words, he brings in the gospel of God. The program has changed, and today we are living in what is called a parenthetical program. Well, I would agree. It is a parenthetical program, as revealed rightly in grasping the prophecy of Noah upon his sons, Shem and Japheth. Japheth will dwell in the tents of Shem. Go back and watch what I referred to earlier. But it is wholly incorrect that Paul brought in the gospel of God. There is one and only one gospel brought in by Jesus Paul simply revealed the same mystery in writing that the other apostles had to learn by experience and which they then confirmed in Acts chapter 15. We'll go over that a little bit as we go. In their conclusion, they cite the words of Amos 9, confirming that, in fact, the Gentiles are being taken out as a people for the name of the Lord. And only then will Israel be visited when they call on the Lord through the one and only gospel. I cited that verse a while ago. If this is too much information, go back and watch this a thousand times and you'll get it. Just refer to what I'm referring to here. This is why the focus goes from Peter in Acts chapters 1 through 12 to who? Paul in Acts 13 through 28. In order to understand this, you need to understand how Noah's prophecy sets the entire prophetic scenario of the coming ages and dispensations, something that hyper-dispensationalists have no idea about. Mr. Atwood then says at minute 1441, during that ministry, Peter was preaching exactly what Jesus Christ had taught him to preach. What was that? It was the gospel of the kingdom, and it was the great commission. That's his words. In this, he is saying that the gospel of the kingdom is not the gospel of the church. This is entirely wrong, as is evidenced by Acts chapter 1. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And this is exactly what they did, as is revealed explicitly in the book of Acts, in exactly that order. They went to Jerusalem, they then went to Judea, they then went to Samaria, and then they went to the ends of the earth, in that order. The kingdom being referred to by the apostles and which Jesus completely skipped over in his answer to them is the literal physical kingdom where he will rule among Israel after they have received the one and only gospel. The mandate was not understood by them, obviously, because they almost had to be forced into speaking to the Gentiles. And even after the Gentiles were received, they still couldn't believe it. But they did accept it, as is clearly seen in Acts chapter 11. I'll read that later. It was Paul, properly trained in Old Testament theology, who was able to properly communicate the message to the Gentiles. Not because of a different gospel, but because he had an understanding of the true and only gospel, the mystery of Gentiles being brought into the commonwealth of Israel. 
Again, go review Acts chapter 10 and 11 and Galatians chapter 2, which I have already read you, among many other such passages. At minute 1530, Mr. Atwood states that salvation of Jews is based on repentance and water baptism, as is recorded in Acts 2, verse 38. This is incorrect. He is taking those verses as prescriptive, and he is failing to account for the reason that Acts 2, 8, and 10 are included as they are in Scripture. Again, to understand why these various accounts differ, one needs to watch the Romans 6, 3, and 4 study in our Romans playlist, and you will get why they have three different accounts, one to the Jews in Acts 2, one to the Samaritans in Acts 8, and then one to Cornelius and the Gentiles in Acts 10. Acts is a historical record. It is not to be taken as prescriptive. There is one and only one gospel. The events at Pentecost required, they required Peter's statement for a specific reason. Does anyone know why he said, repent and be baptized? They They just killed Christ. They just crucified the Lord who was prophesied in their own scriptures. They had to repent of this. They could not be saved unless they repented of that. If you understand what the Greek word metanoia means, does anyone know what it means? Change your mind. mind. That's all it means. They had to repent. They had crucified him. Now they have to change their mind about who they crucified. Baptism was required as a public acknowledgement that they were aligning with the Lord against the leadership of Israel. It is the same reason as why it says this in Luke chapter 7. And when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Peter's words required repentance and baptism for exactly this reason. It does not prescribe it for any Jew, not one beyond that point. This is evident because in Acts 18, verses 24 through 28, Apollos did neither, and yet he had the spirit based on, yes, belief. That is correct, despite only knowing the baptism of John. I've got a great class here. Oops. That's what I say to hyper-dispensationalists. Oops. He then spoke to Jews in Acts 19, verses 1 through 7, saying, Nothing, not a word of repentance, and he, in fact, argues against repentance because that was the purpose of John's baptism. But he did baptize them into Jesus, after which they received the Spirit. None of these are prescriptive. All are different in what occurs, and each is given to reveal God's working out the new covenant differently based on the surrounding circumstances. The accounts are only historical and descriptive. Case closed. Hyper-dispensationalism fails the rightly dividing the word test. At minute 1825, he says Paul was given a new gospel. False and heresy. Paul's gospel was spoken to both Jews and Gentiles. In Acts 13, he speaks only to Jews. This is Paul speaking only to Jews. And he gives the exact same gospel to them that Peter gave to them, summing up to them, meaning the Jews, that everyone who believes, thank you, great audience here, is justified from all things from which you could not be justified 
by the law of Moses. That's Acts 13, verse 39. Oops. The entire account can be reviewed in Acts 13, 16 through 41. There is one and only one gospel. At minute 1834, he says, Paul recognized that the nation of Israel was no longer God's chosen people. In Romans 11, you see Peter is preaching to get Israel saved. Paul is preaching with the understanding that Israel is not going to be saved. He then cites Romans 11:13 through 15 and says, Peter didn't believe that the reconciling of them was going to be the casting away of the world. Peter believed that salvation of them was going to be the reconciling of the world. And Peter believed that had Israel been saved, then they would go out as a kingdom of priests and evangelize the world and they would carry out the Great Commission. Those are all his words, saying that the Great Commission is a priestly function and it only belongs to the Jews. This is a highly convoluted statement. It disregards what sharing the gospel is. Does anyone here know what sharing the gospel is? Anyone? But what is it? But what is evangelizing? I have to tell you, it is a priestly function. Thus, both Peter and Paul and any other person who shares the gospel of Jesus Christ is performing a priestly duty. In Romans 15, verse 16, Paul speaks of the grace given to him by God with these words, that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Spirit. The word ministering in Greek is hierorgio. It means to minister as a priest. The NASB and other versions rightly translate this as ministering as a priest, the gospel of God. In other words, the very act of sharing the gospel is a priestly function something that too many Christians don't take advantage of, too. This dispels the hyper-dispensationalist view that when Jesus refers to having made us kings and priests to his God and Father, that it's only speaking of Israel. That is false. That is a heresy, and it is based on their false gospel. At minute 2106, Mr. Atwood says to compare Acts 2 with Luke 24:47, And so we will. Luke 24, 46 and 47 says, Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. That what is saying that Jesus' words of Luke 24, 47 match Acts 2, where Peter says to repent, thus proving that this is a different gospel. What does Paul say in Romans 2, 4, 2 Corinthians 7, 9, and 10, 2 Corinthians 12, 21, and 2 Timothy 2, verse 5? Does anybody know what Paul says in those verses? Repent! Just because Jesus says that repentance and remission of sins is to be preached does not mean that repentance is required for salvation. It is a requirement for right living after remission of sins. All preachers, every decent preacher on this planet is to preach repentance because of remission of sins. This is what Paul states in his epistles, and it is in accord with Jesus' words of Luke 24, verse 47, repent. It means to change one's mind. 
Peter was telling the people of Israel to change their mind about what they had done to Christ. Any person who has been given the gospel and rejects it, get this, Jew or Gentile, any person who has been given the gospel and rejects it must, by default, repent of that in order to be saved. They've already said, I don't believe this. They must repent. Therefore, repentance is mandatory for that group of people. And that's why Peter said that to Israel. And if you have rejected Christ in your life and you want to come to Christ, you have to repent of that. That means change your mind. Does everybody understand that? That is a fundamental error of their heresy. Any person saved is expected to repent afterward of their sin. They will not lose their salvation if they don't, but it is expected. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 gives an example of someone who fails to do this. What does he say to do to him? Get him out of the church. If you don't repent, you are out. It has nothing to do with salvation. It has to do with being saved. At minute 2159, Atwood says, Today, salvation is not by repentance and what are baptism. That is a fallacy known as a category mistake. Nobody believes in salvation by grace through faith and says you have to be baptized in order to be saved. Nobody, except the Church of Christ, and they are mishandling the book of Acts. Rather, those things are mandated by Jesus Christ as acts of obedience. Paul mandates that we repent of sin, but it does not change our salvation if we do not. At Acts 15, verses 10 and 11, though not prescriptive, he calls the Gentiles disciples and clearly refers to them as being on the same page and in the same gospel as those Jews in the Council of Jerusalem. The mandate for baptizing disciples given by Jesus Christ after his establishment of the new covenant and the one gospel of grace stands. It is disobedience to the Lord Jesus Christ to teach that Gentiles are not commanded to be baptized. It is not a salvific issue, but it is an issue of obedience to the Lord's command. Unfortunately, those hyper-dispensationalists who are saved will lose rewards for failing to be obedient to the Lord's command of baptism. And those hypers who teach this false doctrine are going to have to stand before the Lord and they are going to have to give an account for their false teaching. Romans 2.4 says, The goodness of God, meaning His grace, leads you to repentance. Repentance is an expectation of salvation, not a requirement for it. As evidence of this, what was the response of the Jews who contended with Peter in Acts chapter 11 when he explained why he went to Cornelius' house in Acts chapter 10? Does anybody know what their, their response was? I'm going to take you there. Acts chapter 11. No, well, that's true, but that was a little bit later. I'm going to take you to Acts chapter... I've still got a ways to go. Acts chapter 11 and verse 18. It says these words. When they heard these things, they became silent and glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Oh my goodness gracious. Was there any note of repentance in Acts chapter 10 at Cornelius' house? Was there any note of it? Not at all. None. Here, let's go there. Acts chapter 10, and we're going to start at verse 34. This is how they got saved. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. 
the word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. That word, you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began in Galilee, after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him, and after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him, believes in him, will receive remission of sins. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished as many as came with Peter because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. They heard the word, they believed, and they received the Holy Spirit. After this, they were baptized according to and in obedience to the word of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hyper-dispensationalists not only mishandle the word, but they actively work against Christ's prescription, which is to be baptized. These people won't lose their salvation, and if they said, I don't want to be baptized, they'd still be saved to this day but they were just being disobedient to the word of the Lord. That is the command of the Lord to which their heretical teaching is disobedient. At minute 22, eight, Atwood laughingly says, today you are not required to lay your possessions at the apostles' feet, referring to the account of the people going to the apostles and laying their possessions there. That is an absurd and an irrelevant comment. That wasn't even required then. Those who did so did so voluntarily as explicitly stated by Peter in Acts 5, verse 4. Go read it. Case closed. In this hyper-dispensationalism fails the rightly dividing the word test. At minute 2415, that would tries to divide the gospel of Paul from that of Peter again. In 2 Corinthians 5, 18, which speaks of the ambassadors of Christ and the ministry of reconciliation. Who is he speaking of? It is found in 2 Corinthians 1, 19. Paul? Silvanus and Timothy. Ah, oh, y'all get failed, Mark, on that one. But who then does Peter refer to in 1 Peter 5, verse 22? Silvanus. Same message, same reconciliation, same ambassador. In 1 Peter 5, 13, Peter then greets the people again along with somebody named, it begins with M and ends with A-R-K. Anybody? Mark. That's right. This is the same Mark who carried the same gospel with Paul and Barnabas and who is cited by Paul in 2 Timothy 4.11, Philemon 1.24, and etc. Paul went with Mark and Barnabas. Did they proclaim two gospels? No. 
And Paul refers to him again and again, the same Mark that Peter refers to in his epistle. Case closed. In this hyper-dispensationalism fails the rightly dividing the word test. As a summary of the nature of there being one and only one gospel, we see that the church is the body of Christ, as is made explicit in Ephesians 1, 22, and 23, where it says this, and he put all things under his feet, meaning Christ, and he gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Ephesians 3 then demonstrates that the body of Christ is the Jews and Gentiles and that they share in that same body. I've already read it once. I'm going to read the whole passage now. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you, how that by revelation, here it is, he made known to me the mystery as I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, that it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ. The body of Christ, Jews, and Gentiles partake of the same body through the gospel of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. It is that simple. How anyone can miss that is utterly astonishing. It demonstrates a very, very poor handling of scripture and a lack of scholarship on their part to put forth this heresy. If one understands the structure of the book of Acts following the hyper-dispensationalist model one would have three Gospels, or more, not two as they claim, and not one as the Bible teaches. Acts 2, 8, and 10 would imply three Gospels using their logic. Hyperdispensationalism's logic breaks down in Romans 10, 9, and 10. It is claimed by some of them that those verses apply only to Jews, because Paul is speaking of Jews there. If that is so, then it contradicts what they claim about the supposed gospel of the Jews in Acts 2.38. Because in Acts 2.38, it says, repent and be baptized. But in Romans 10, 9, and 10, it says that you believe and you receive the Spirit, right? So then there would be a contradiction in their model. Further, if it applies to both Jew and Gentile, as it does, and as is obvious from the singular pronouns used, then it destroys their analysis anyway. Again, hyperdispensationalism fails the rightly dividing the word test. Hyperdispensationalism destroys any meaning of the words of 1 Corinthians 1, 12 and 13, where it says this, Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Christ is not divided. There is one gospel, and who is Cephas? Peter. Peter. The answer is no, Christ is not divided, nor is the gospel of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul lumps himself in with all of the other apostles, demonstrating as clearly as can be seen that they all proclaimed the same gospel. It is a gospel which includes the mystery revealed to them, not Paul, to them, all of them, that Gentiles would be fellow heirs and of the same body with the Jews. Do we have no right to eat and drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord, and 
Tafe us. Peter again, and again in 1 Corinthians 3, 21 through 23, therefore let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul, or Apollos, or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or things present, or things to come, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. And again, in 1 Corinthians 4, 9, for I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last, as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. The words of Galatians 2, 11 through 21, which I've already read, tie Peter and what he was doing in with the one and only gospel. Again, anyone who reads those verses and who cannot make this connection has absolutely zero discernment in biblical context. There is one gospel and there is only one gospel. The church started with the new covenant. There is one covenant and only one. The Jews simply missed this as a nation. But there is one church. This is extremely bad doctrine, which tries to divide what happened with the Jews and what happened with the Gentiles. That is heresy. There is one church and only one. We've proved that at least 50 times now. When they say that prophecy belongs to the Jews, this is what hyper-dispensationalists would say, prophecy belongs to the Jews and mysteries belong to the church, they completely abuse scripture in order to come to this conclusion as we have seen. It is a failed system which arises out of a faulty hermeneutic, which comes out of an incorrect analysis of the purpose and meaning behind the book of Acts. The stewards of the mysteries are the apostles, including Peter and Paul, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 4.1, and which is explained by the previous verses as Paul, Apollos, and Cephas, meaning Peter, and referring to all of the other apostles. The land promise and the promise of the kingdom during the millennium is to the Jews. That is correct, but that it will still be under one covenant is obvious on the surface. Christ died how many times? Once. He ushered in one new covenant, and his body is the church of which is comprised of, as we have seen, Jew and Gentile. To say that what happened at the beginning with Peter and the Jews wasn't a part of the church is to say that they are not under the same covenant as we are. Unfortunately, people look at what Jesus did as somehow being effectual only for one group or another, such as baptism only belonging to the Jews. If that is so, then the Lord's Supper, which predates, predates the mandate for baptism and said nothing of the nations, is also only for the Jews. How absurd is that? Paul outlines the same Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that Jesus outlined in the Gospels. It is almost word for word what Luke records in Luke 22, 19, and 20. As that applies to the Gentiles, because it is recorded for the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, then the mandate for baptism, which comes after the institution of the Lord's Supper and which is proclaimed from Jesus' own mouth, also applies to the Gentiles. There is not one instance, not one, of a convert, Jew or Gentile, in the New Testament who is not subsequently baptized after having received Christ Jesus, not one. Read all of the church fathers back to the very first ones after the apostolic age, and they all agreed on baptism for everybody as a public profession of the change which has been made in their life, and because Jesus Christ commanded it. Another abuse of scripture by hyper-dispensationalists is stating that Galatians 2 speaks of two different gospels. There it says in Galatians 2, 7, and 8, 
But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. That may be the worst hermeneutic yet. First, the words, the gospel, before the words, for the circumcised, are inserted by the translators. It's not in the original. The Greek reads that I have been entrusted with the gospel of the uncircumcision, just as Paul of the circumcision. There is one gospel with two heralds of that one gospel. Secondly, the reason for the division between Paul and Peter wasn't for the proclamation of a second gospel, but that Paul's ministry within the one gospel was to the Gentiles. From my commentary on the book of Galatians, having said this, it does not mean that Peter's ministry was solely one of evangelizing Jews, because he obviously evangelized, as was noted concerning Cornelius, nor was Paul's ministry solely one of evangelizing the Gentiles. I cited Acts 13, where Paul spoke to the Jews. There was also not a different gospel transmitted by Peter than that of Paul. Rather, there is, as the Bible scholar Lightfoot notes, a distinction of sphere and not a difference of type. This is absolutely certain by Paul's comments in Galatians as well as Peter's comments in his second epistle, which for clarity of thought, we will again cite. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our brother Paul, beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of scriptures. There, Peter cites who? Paul, thank you. And when he does, he is in complete agreement with him. Hyperdispensationalism is pure poison. Hyperdispensationalists use verses like Matthew 15:24 and Matthew 10:16, where Jesus told the apostles not to go to the Gentiles or to the Samaritans, but only to the lost sheep of Israel to prove that there are two gospels. Does anyone know what the problem with that is? They were still under the law. That is an entirely different dispensation, that of law. And it was for the set purpose of his first fulfilling the law, which had been given to Israel. It has absolutely nothing to do with the gospel, which could only come through the new covenant in his shed blood. When hypers use that verse, they then introduce a contradiction into scripture because Philip was told to go to who in Acts chapter 8? The Ethiopian who is a Gentile. And Peter was explicitly told to go to who in Acts chapter 10? The Gentiles, Cornelius. As is typical with hyperdispensationalism, it is a complete mixing of apples and oranges to come to a faulty, heretical conclusion. Hyperdispensationalists say that in Matthew, that Christ told the disciples about how he must suffer and die and rise on the third day, and that in the very next verse it says that it was hidden from them. It then must be that they did not know about the death, burial, and resurrection, and so their gospel is different than Paul's, because Paul's gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection. I'm not even sure if that deserves a response, but that's what he asked back there a minute ago. It is such a ridiculous claim that only an infant in the faith, and I'm not calling him that, could come up with it. He just asked the question. First, that was before. 
not after Christ's crucifixion. Of course they didn't know what he was talking about. Secondly, the very thing they state in this is that that thing Peter later proclaims, guess what? five times in both Acts and in his epistles as the gospel of Christ. In fact, in 1 Peter 1, Peter mentions the resurrection and the crucifixion and what that means for the believer. And then he says explicitly, now, this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. The problem with hyperdispensationalism, again, lies mainly with their abusive hermeneutics in regards to the book of Acts. It is the chronic problem with most denominations. They are using it as a prescriptive book. It is not. Go watch those things that I refer to and you'll understand that. It simply describes what occurred. If they cite Acts 2, for example, to say that Jews are required to be baptized and repent for salvation, they have completely missed what is occurring. That was a one-time statement to Israel for a specific purpose, which I said before, and I'm saying it again, it is in my Romans 6, 3 through 4 study. Almost all denominations fail to take Acts as it is given, as a historical account of what occurred and as a merely descriptive account. Anytime you listen to a preacher talk about Acts, ask yourself this, are they citing Acts in this case as prescriptive? If they are, what I want you to do is toss that analysis right out of their commentary. In this, you will then stand approved in the context of what is being relayed. Two more points and we will be done. When Paul says, my gospel, in Romans 2.16 and 16.25, that does not mean a different gospel. Paul is not claiming authority to the gospel as if he is the author. Instead, he is claiming authority to it as a herald of the author's message. His commission stands directly from the words of Jesus in Acts 9.15. There, Jesus states to Ananias, he, speaking of Paul, is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. This then places Paul in opposition to any false gospel such as hyperdispensationalism. His word is the authoritative word of God as transmitted through him, just as the word of the prophets of old. The very fact that Jesus said he was to bear his name before the children of Israel means that it is the same gospel Peter proclaimed. Romans 1.11, it says that Paul's hope was to impart some spiritual gift that you may be established. He said that right at the beginning of the epistle. He said this to Jew and Gentile. In Romans 16.25, he notes that it is the Lord who in fact is able to so establish them. And this is, as he says, according to my gospel. In other words, it is speaking, because the Lord is the one that establishes them, it is speaking of their doctrines, which were set forth in Romans, written by him. The gospel is entirely Christ-centered. We were predestined for salvation because God foreknew us, Romans 8.29. Our calling is of the Lord, Romans 8.30. Salvation is of the Lord, Romans 10.9. Justification is of the Lord, Romans 3.24. Sanctification is of the Lord. This came through the work of the Holy Spirit who testifies to the work of Christ, Romans 15.16. And glorification is of the Lord, Romans 8.30. As I said, Paul speaks to both Jew and Gentile in that one epistle. See Romans 2.17 for the Jew and Romans 1.13 for the Gentile and so on throughout the epistle. Every one of these precepts belongs to both Jew and Gentile. It is one gospel and only one. I held up two fingers, but it means one. 
Finally, as Revelation ends the Bible, I will devote 10 seconds to the hyper-dispensationalist claim that Revelation 1 through 3, and especially the seven letters to the seven churches, is not directed to the Gentile-led church, which is under the Gentiles' gospel, but that it is directed to the Jews under the Jews' gospel. That is their claim. The claim is that all of the symbolism of those chapters is Jewish symbolism and has nothing to do with the church. Yes, as nutty as that sounds, that is what they teach. I've already shown that Paul highlights all of the feasts of the Lord, revealing that their fulfillment is in him. I have shown that all of the symbolism of the dietary laws finds its fulfillment in him. The same is true with every detail of what is found in Revelation 1 through 3. It all points to Christ. He is what the ancient types looked forward to. That is why Moses was told concerning the details of the tabernacle and its implements and see to it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. The reason for the Old Testament symbolism is because there is a heavenly reality to which those things pointed. That reality is Christ. To understand this, you will need to watch all of the Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers sermons, but you will have spent your time far more wisely than getting caught up in the ridiculous, heretical, anti-Semitic teaching known as hyper-dispensationalism, because that is the root of this teaching, anti-Semitism. The seven letters were written to the seven Gentile churches, and they carried the symbolism of Christ that John revealed to them, just as Paul did in his letters, which I showed you. I have a friend who struggled with this heresy. When I explained to him that it is Christ's fulfillment of these types and shadows in Christ, as Colossians 2, 16 and 17 says, which I cited earlier, which completes the old covenant and which is then revealed to all Jew and Gentile in the new covenant, he said these words to me. It's like a light bulb went off, Charlie, after talking to you. It has to be one gospel. That gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And although the Old Testament foreshadows these things coming, even if the 12 apostles didn't fully understand that gospel or see the gospel clearly, it's the same gospel that Paul was teaching. The only difference is that Paul had the further revelation given to him, as well as a few other things in his ministry, such as the rapture. But it's the same gospel. Everything is summed up in, he says, Jesus Christ. It is all about him. It is his righteousness, his shed blood, his fulfillment of everything. I understand this. Good job, Mark. That is absolutely it. Paul's revelation was simply that this gospel includes in totality the Gentiles. The others weren't trained in the law, and thus they had no way to process this. This is why Paul was selected. He was a trained Pharisee that could make all of the connections that the other apostles lacked. Today, you have been given a lot of information, and I am not going to address this again, in part or in whole. If somebody emails me, they will get a link to this or a written copy of it, and that is it. I simply got tired of people sending me one verse at a time and asking me to explain it to them. Scripture tennis is a pointless exercise. If you remember this one thing, you will be through with this ridiculous heresy. Acts is not a prescriptive epistle. It is a historical account of what occurred. When someone preaches a sermon and they use the events of Acts in a prescriptive manner, then ignore what you heard. 
That person has improperly handled scripture and you can reject his analysis. Stick to Paul during this dispensation, but remember that what Paul teaches in his epistles is in perfect harmony with the words of the other epistles of the other apostles. The church began with Christ completing the work set out for him to accomplish. When he sent the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, the church, the one and only church with the one and only gospel, began, thus fulfilling that feast, the final feast of the Lord to be fulfilled. Each time a person comes to Christ, they receive the same spirit that was given on that day. They have their Pentecost moment, and thus the church for them as individual believers begins. If you want a copy of this talk today, it is available on the Superior Word website in written format, or I can email it to you as well. I would ask two things of you before we close. The first is to study, to show yourself approved, which includes leaving behind the heresy of hyper-dispensationalism, and two, if you have never called on Christ through the one and only gospel, today is the day to do so. Call on Christ and be reconciled to him through his shed blood. Christ died for your sins. He was buried. He was raised again to life to prove that he is God. If you call on the name of the Lord, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, I know I'm misquoting that, Romans 10, 9 and 10, go ahead and read it. You will be saved. Heavenly Father, thank you for the wonder and the miracle and the marvel of our Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. Thank you for his shed blood, which reconciles us to you. And thank you that there is one gospel for all people, Jew and Gentile alike, and that your promises to the Jews will come about in their due time when they as a nation call on you. But at this time, all Jews are saved exactly as we are we are not anti-Semites in this church. We love Israel and we love what you have done for them throughout history because your faithfulness to them demonstrates your faithfulness to us. Thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord, and it is in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.